0: Hi and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil and it's that time of year when I resurrect the Night of the Livy Dead pun for a Halloween special. This time around I'm going to be talking about witches and demons in Mesopotamia. And if you listened to last year's Halloween episode, which I did on ghosts, I went into some detail on The Exorcist in Mesopotamia and how he contended with ghosts. But The Exorcist had other things to worry about, namely witches and demons. Before I start I need to mention a couple of things. The show notes as ever will be up on ancientblogger.com and I'll feature the reading list I've done for this episode there's some really good stuff there. I should also mention that though you can get me on twitter through ancientblogger the ancient history hound podcast now has its own twitter account or handle at houndancient. Finally if you can spare a review it makes a huge difference to people like me that is indie podcasters. On some platforms it can give this podcast or any podcast a lot more visibility or simply visibility full stop. Anyway, I'm going to start now with where this all took place. The lands of ancient Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is an ancient Greek word for the land between two rivers. The rivers in question being the Tigris and Euphrates. And so Mesopotamia largely relates to modern day Iraq but is also eastern Syria and southeastern Turkey. It was here that cities developed, small communities evolving into complex urban centres. By the end of the 3rd millennia BC, these are estimated to have held 90% of the population of Mesopotamia. But Mesopotamia wasn't a monolithic culture, it was a set of vibrant smaller cultures which fed into a sometimes bewildering overarching one. There were shared values and commonalities, but there were also differences. Empires here waxed and waned with different peoples and cities assuming prominence at various times. And the reason this is all important is because Mesopotamia is both a large region and a large time scale. In this episode I'll be jumping from the third millennium BCE to the first millennium BCE. I'll often refer to the Neo-Assyrian period and this covers the time from around the 10th century BCE through to the end of the 7th century BCE. And as you've probably guessed all the dates I'll be dealing with unless I state otherwise are going to be BC or BCE. When it comes to witches and witchcraft, there's one elephant in the room, and that's how you define magic. Versnell once wrote, one problem is that you can't talk about magic without using the word magic. And this is a neat summary of the problem. Magic is defined within the culture you are discussing. Take this example. Magic in medieval Europe was considered heresy by the church and could lead to a person being killed for practicing it. Yet in Mesopotamia, there was no such contrast. In fact, magic was something which often involved a deity to help facilitate the outcome. It wasn't irreligious at all. There was no application for that. Mesopotamia didn't have the opposition of the church as a neat line in the sand to understand what magic was. And there's almost so the point I made earlier, namely that I'm looking for a definition which covers thousands of years and various cultures. Perhaps what is best is to think of magic in Mesopotamia as a range of rituals and activities where an individual needed a supernatural element to affect an outcome. I appreciate that it's a bit woolly, but I think it will suffice for this episode. If we know what magic was, or at least can agree on a basic definition, then we can start to understand what a witch was. And I'm actually going to stop using the word witch, as this brings with it too much baggage. The Akkadian word commonly used is kasaptu for a woman, and kaspu for a man. Akkadian was a language which rose to prominence and replaced the previously used Sumerian, though Sumerian was still used in some circumstances. It was also believed that women were often responsible, an attitude which is somewhat reminiscent in my cultural experience of witches, but I'll be using Kasaptu for ease of purpose. But there are references to a man or Kasapu, and I'll be referring to those later in individual circumstances. By the Neo-Assyrian period and probably earlier, the Kasaptu had been firmly ensconced into the guise of baddie. Because malevolent magic was what they did, and it was what defined them. There was no Glenda, the good Kasaptu. This brought with it a number of somewhat familiar associations. A Kasaptu was in opposition to both an individual and possibly the king, or the state, or just generally anything good. They could be foreigners and hung around with other individuals, such as snake charmers and owl men. I'm not entirely sure if by snake charmers the modern definition fits, by the way. So if you're a snake charmer and listening, I'm not trying to dig you out at all. As for the old men, I tried to find out a little more but couldn't. And if you know anything about either more in this context, please let me know. Little is known about Kasaptu. There's no surviving spell book or account left by one that we have. And perhaps that's not too much of a surprise. But we can learn about them from the anti-witchcraft rituals which have survived and largely date from the Neo-Assyrian period. The premise of many of these is that they undo an existing spell by reversing it. Therefore, they often list the details of that spell. There were a wide variety of these counter spells because a II might affect their victim in a number of ways. Sometimes they were known by their victims. Other times, and as the incantations reveal, the victim had no idea who the II responsible was. A II might cause stomach problems, impotence and worse but they might also cause your business to fail or for you to fall from social grace. In the middle of the 18th century, the Codex Hammurappi was written. This contained numerous laws and one of them related to witchcraft. The law read as follows. If a man has brought a charge of sorcery against another man, but has not proved it by means of witnesses, the one against whom the charge of sorcery was brought will go to the river of the ordeal and undergo the river ordeal, and, if the river overcomes him, his accuser shall take over his house. If the river ordeal clears the man and he comes out safely, the one who brought the charge of sorcery shall be put to death. He who leapt in the holy river shall take over the house of his accuser. The only people referred to here are men, but it could be that's because it was a man who might have employed the Kasaptu, or it could also be that the man himself was a Kasapu, What stands out to me is how it placed responsibility on the prosecutor, as he could lose everything. Perhaps this was a check and balance to prevent mass accusations. It's not entirely clear what the river ordeal was. A temptation might be to think of how witches were identified in medieval Europe by being put in a river or pond. If they floated, they were guilty, and if they sank, they drowned. But they were innocent. But here, it's not clear that the act of being in a river was going to kill the person. More that it allowed judgment in some fashion and the notion of an ordeal as a way of discerning truth existed in other legal cases not just those concerning witchcraft and Faced points out that rather than sink or swim the ordeal required specialist priests or scholars to decode and decide the outcome. Water crops up a few times when discussing witchcraft as you'll hear and a river forms a backdrop to a magical competition in a Sumerian era epic called Enmakar and Enshukistan. In it a sorcerer, the word here is masmas or masmasu, travels to a town and casts a spell which prevents the cows and goats from giving milk. Luckily though, a woman called Sagbura saves the day. Sagburu and the sorcerer compete in a magical fishing competition. The sorcerer throws bait into the river and catches a carp. Sagburu pulls an eagle from the river, which takes the carp. In the next round, the sorcerer pulls a lamb from the river. And Sagburu pulls a wolf, which takes the lamb. This pattern continues before the mass-mass or sorcerer gives up. He's then killed by Sagburu and thrown in the river. You've probably noticed the role reversal here. It's a man performing the bad magic and a woman who has stopped him. Sagburu is referred to in the text as a wise woman. Svea Busch has speculated that originally there was someone who might practice both harmful and protective magic. However, as societies developed, magic was split between the benevolent and the harmful. It was easier for the latter to be identified solely with a woman and set up as a counter to a male equivalent, the asipu, someone who only practised protective or benevolent magic. By the Neo-Assyrian period, the asipu was the good guy, the expert you'd need to counter witchcraft. The myth might support this idea, as the word Masmas or Masmasu meaning something like sorcerer was actually the Sumerian version of the Akkadian word asipu. Perhaps in the more distant past, there was just this, People practicing magic, be it good or bad, there wasn't that distinction. The Asapu is often referred to as an exorcist, which does that familiar thing of carrying modern baggage into the conversation in a non-too-helpful way. It's best to think of the Asapu as a highly trained official who dealt with supernatural issues. His job was to diagnose what the issue was and provide a cure, and normally this was done through a ritual in which a deity or other supernatural beings were recruited to help. This is normally facilitated through an appeal, and then incantations followed, along with a ritual of sorts. Along with an Asapu, an Asu was sometimes mentioned as helping all of this. These were the physicians of the day who focused on potions and salves. However, it's debated as to whether a person could be both, or if they worked in tandem. For the sake of ease, I'm going to keep with the Asapu, as they were always front and centre when it came to witchcraft. With all that said and done, witchcraft wasn't a regularly diagnosed outcome. Thompson notes that in one of the Exist handbooks the large majority of issues a patient had were due to a ghost, demon or just an annoyed deity. Only 5% of these involved a witchcraft or cassap Yet Thompson is quick to point out that anti-witchcraft rituals and the likes were still very popular. In some instances the patient displayed symptoms or gave the asapy clue of what he's up against. But what if that wasn't obvious? Well witchcraft could be detected using the following ritual. Dough figurines of a man and a woman were made, representing either a kasaptu or kasapu These figurines were placed onto each other and then an incantation was set over them seven times. These were then placed near a pig and if the pig approached the figurines, that meant the person was bewitched in some way. An obvious point emerges here, namely the tendency pigs have to approach food, be it a cabbage tossed nearby or a couple of tasty looking dough figurines. A cynical voice in my head suggests that this might have been a bit of a ruse on the part of the Asapu, as it certainly generated in business. In any case, figurines played a huge part in witchcraft, acting as a way of returning the magic back at the Kassapzu. We know that a Kasaptu must have used them because counterspells refer to ones that have been made of the victim. These figurines of the victim might be given to a dog or a pig to eat, placed in the lap of a dead man, buried, or just stuffed in a drain. Even then, it might not be too obvious what was going on. A particular sinister type of witchcraft was known as Zikarudu, which translates as cutting the throat. Despite its name, it wasn't a physical manifestation of the victim through an illness. This was more psychological, and it involved items or ill omens being made known to the victim. The common term is to be seen. It's not fully clear what these were. One idea has it that they could have been small animal skins stuffed with items. And this suggests that the Kassaptu was nearby. Sometimes these weren't items that had been left. they were things that were being caused. In a letter to King S.R. there was mention about a type of fungus found growing on a temple wall, which needed to be removed by an asapu. And it wasn't just temples. Fungus might also be found on the walls of your house, which could be a deadly omen and as ever needed an asapu to help remove. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, there's a section which might be linked to this. In it, Moses and his brother Aaron are told by their God about the dangers of mould in a house and what to do when they spot it. When you're talking about responses to witchcraft though, there was one ritual which stood out above all others. It was called the Maklu, or burning. This was performed in the month of Abu, which is around July and August. And that it was restricted to a specific time is suggested this was more to rid the person of any possible witchcraft, perhaps not in response to something specific, more a kind of spring clean. The Maklu had a short and a full version. Either way it was performed at night and conducted by an Asapu as you'd expect. Figurines representing the kasaptu were created and then placed into a fire. They were then doused with water before being disposed of and they weren't casually thrown into a bin. They were either dropped in a river or placed outside the city. All the while incantations were being uttered by the Asapu. The longer version had a hundred or so incantations, and the shorter just ten, but it was still a long and detailed rite. The concept was that any of the bad magic which had been sent to the victim, even if he wasn't necessarily aware of it, would be returned back to the casaptu, who was then killed. And it didn't end there, as the latter part of the ritual dealt with the ghost of the casaptu. Ghosts, as I covered in last year's episode, were recognised in Mesopotamia and could cause disease or illness. This particular counter to a Kassaptu, that is the Maklu, extended past just removing the magic. It also involved the Kassaptu directly. And remember that cremation wasn't commonplace. The idea that you could burn the offending Casaptu may be a way of denying anything to bury. This meant that in the underworld, a drab and dreary place, the Casaptu's ghost or spirit wouldn't be afforded the basic privileges the dead had who had been buried. The mat Clue wasn't the only way you might counter witchcraft. A good example was the use of potions and salves and these might be administered by the Yasu I mentioned earlier but again I'm going to assume that it was the Asipu here who was the primary figure. Say you had a pain between your shoulders and your teeth were bleeding. Well, try this mixture of beer and herbs and wear this necklace. Tastes good? No, of course it shouldn't because it's going to make you sick. Many potions had this effect and it follows a line of thought that if you'd eaten something bewitched which was causing the problem, it would then make sense to get whatever it was out of your system. One instance of this was quite famous. In the 18th century, Princess Shamatu was accused of giving her father, King Zimri-Lin, the King of Mari, bewitched food. And perhaps the king was made to drink one of those none too pleasant potions. Well, let's say you were really unpopular. Well, if it was because of witchcraft, a special salve would be rubbed into you, whilst the Asipu repeated the incantation, You are pleasing. An Asapu could even require the victim to wash him or herself over figurines of the witch. Again, there's a connection with water here. The point I'm making is that aside from the big Maklu ritual, there are a number of ways a presumed victim could reverse the magic back on the Kasaptu, and that was the main requirement, to reverse the magic and send it back, presumably either hindering it or, in some, st- in some instances, killing the Kasaptu. You might also wear something to deal with any spell sent your way. One remedy for bad luck sent by a casap to was the wearing of a small bag around the neck which contained several drugs this could get quite specific combined with the right incantation this might also help the wearer in a court case it's probably no surprise that amulets were also used these were popular in general in mesopotamia and might deal with a number of situations for example an innkeeper could wear one to help increase trade magic as i hope i've got across was part of the cultural landscape You might wonder then who was using this type of magic that is the anti witchcraft options I've covered. Sevilla Bush has argued that it was quite simple elite men. Bush does add the caveat that there are instances where it seems women may have been involved for example countering a Kassap who had caused her husband to stray or simply causing her baby harm but it's an interesting conclusion one which does seem to have traction with some of the points I've covered. To start with this all needed an asebu, an expert, who is most likely found in the main cities, rather than the towns and villages. Added to this, much of the witchcraft seems interested in social status as much as illness. Now, who had this social status to lose? A slave or a woman working in the field? Hmm, not really. Even the instance of the law I cited at the beginning could support this idea. There was, in fact, a second law which covered witchcraft, and this dated to the 12th century. Here, things are different. Gone is the river ordeal and in its place witnesses are expected to give their account to the king. Was this the genuine king or perhaps one of his officials? Either way it's couched in a much more formal setting. A kasaptu may have been more of a threat and perhaps a treatable one if you're a rich elite man in Mesopotamia. The response to a kasaptu often followed a particular pattern. That is an Asapu would come along, there'd be figurines used, incantations and then hopefully the spell's sent back to the Cassap too. But what if this wasn't an option? What if you were dealing with something which couldn't be killed? Before I get to demons, here's a word from the excellent By the Fire podcast. Have you ever wanted to hear more about deities worshipped in Nigerian religions, or black vampires dwelling amongst Americans, or how about those mermaids in Trinidad and Tobago? If so, check out By the Fire podcast where I, Ken, your host, explore tales of mythical creatures and folklore from across the black diaspora. Join me every two weeks where I review black horror media, hear insights from a variety of guest speakers, and be amazed at the vast archive of tales passed down from generation to generation check out bythefirepodcast.com for more information and subscribe to the newsletter so you never miss an episode i look forward to you joining me by the fire thanks again to ken i know there's only so many podcasts you can listen to and there's always someone who says hey you want to try this one out but by the fire it's certainly worth adding to your list Okay, let's get on then with demons. The religious landscape of Mesopotamia was a crowded place, to say the least. There were gods aplenty, as well as many demons. And when I refer to demons, I'm using, much like the word witch, an imported word. Demon comes from a Greek word which translated roughly as spirit. And much like witch, it comes with its own biases and baggage. The words often used for demon are udug and utuku. But as you'll hear this can get quite complex so I'm going to stick with the word demon and start with a point which is crucial in making sense of what a demon was and wasn't. In the city of Assur a box was found under a house. In it was a plaque depicting the god Lamu. It was deliberately placed in the foundations and this connects with Lamu's association as a protective deity. This idea to have something in or under a house or perhaps on a house resonates today I remember horseshoes on houses as a kid though I don't see as many now and I imagine that there are various versions of this all around the world in all the different cultures but what's of note was the inscription on the arms of Lamu it read get out evil demon and come in good demon this seems like a weird qualifier to have but it represented the nature of demons in Mesopotamia they were largely neither good or bad And though there are exceptions, and I'll come to one shortly, demons went around their business and humanity had to deal with the consequences. Constantopolis sums them up nicely as agents of chaos. Demons could cause a patient mild illness through to death, and as ever it relied on the figure of the Asapu to determine what the diagnosis was and what could be done. Demons didn't just act on their own accord, they could be recruited by a Kassaptu to affect a person. The Maklu I mentioned earlier had incantations which referred to demons being recruited by a Kassaptu and even named a couple of them. These could be sent back as part of the Maklu ritual against the Kasaptu In any case, one of the demons mentioned was Lamishtu, and she's a good place to start when talking about demons. Lamishtu is described as having the head of a lion, teeth of a donkey, a hairy body and talons for feet. Lamashtu is a bit of an outlier as she was rarely welcome or beneficial. In fact she presented a serious threat because Lamashtu was drawn to pregnant women and newborn infants. An expectant mother or simply a mother with a young child might wear an amulet to ward off Lamashtu. There are references to amulets being either placed around the necks of children or on the bed where they slept to protect them. As Thompson notes these range from really quite crude things to beautiful and poignant pieces. Another ritual for getting rid of Lamashtu involved making a figurine of her and performing rituals for several days before burying it outside the city, along with a figurine of a black dog. Where rituals against witchcraft look to damage the Kassaptu in some way and return the magic, a demon needed to be treated far more gently, which is why there are sometimes complex rituals which often end with a figurine, if there is one, being moved away and outside the boundary of the city. In some instances this could be a drawn out affair where the figurine of a demon was hosted, given food and even provisions in a small bag before being moved outside the city walls and buried. And there was another way you could deal with Lamashtu. Appealing to protective spirits might help but you could gain assistance from another demon. There was one demon whose main goal was to chase off and fight Lamashtu and it was the go-to anti-Lamashtu demon of choice. His name was Pazuzu and he was also a film star. If you've seen The Exorcist, you might remember that it starts in Iraq, where one of the characters discovers an amulet and later a statue of a horrific-looking figure. Pazuzu is described as having a scaly body, canine face, bulging eyes and wings. The figure is that of Pazuzu, and so it's assumed that Pazuzu is the demon which possesses Regan, the child in The Exorcist. Yet, Pazuzu was more likely the type of demon you'd want around a small child, because if you had Pazuzu, then Lamashtu wouldn't be anywhere near. An important point to clarify, though, is that Pazuzu wasn't driven to act in any way to protect the child out of concern for it. Pazuzu just wanted to fight Lamashtu. Therefore, the benefit was incidental, and in a way, it sums up demons. Aside from the use of figurines to deal with a demon, there was also the option of a substitute victim, In this, an Asapu would look to drive the demon out of the patient or the afflicted body part and into a pig or goat. An Asapu might have more than just one demon to deal with in a single patient. There could also be a ghost involved as well, so it could all get very complex. Using a host animal continues the theme when dealing with demons. You weren't looking to combat them directly, instead try to persuade them to leave for somewhere else. And the use of animals in this way is oddly reminiscent of an event in the New Testament where Christ drives demons out from a man and into some nearby pigs. In all of this, the Asipu drew upon a deity, usually Ea or Enki, to show that they weren't endangered by taking on a demon. This was considered dangerous territory after all, and any Asipu undertaking such a rite would ensure he had the necessary deities in his corner. Demons weren't just meddling in the affairs of humans. A famous myth called the Descent of Ishtar involves the goddess Ishtar descending into the Underworld. This was no mean thing, you just didn't wander down there. And Ishtar has to pass through seven gates before she's granted an audience with her sister, the fantastically named Ereshkigal, the Queen of the Underworld. Just so you know, the Underworld wasn't a nice place. To use the word bleak would be an understatement. In fact, when Ishtar turns up, Ereshkigal is curious as to why anyone would bother. She reminds her sister just how dour things are down there when she comments, instead of bread, I eat clay. Instead of beer, I drink muddy water. When Ishtar returned to the world of living, it came with a condition. She needed to find someone to take her place in the underworld because people generally didn't come back from there. She was accompanied for this by demons, whose job it was to bring humans down to the underworld. Eventually, she found one person who hadn't been mourning her. It was her husband, Dumuzi. He was less in a state of mourning and more in a party mood, so with a flicker of the wrist, he was dragged down below by the Galademons. There's even a cylinder steel which dates to the middle of the third millennium and shows Dumuzi being tortured by Galademons, presumably as further punishment. The association of the underworld demons is interesting. In the 7th century, a poem called The Underworld Vision of an Assyrian Prince was written and this detailed some horrific looking demons. From this, and from the previous mention of the Gala demons, it might be considered that the underworld had an association with demons which was made more evident in the Neo-Assyrian period. Back in the world of the living, we do know that demons had particular hangouts they liked. The Lilitu were female demons who preferred the desert and open country. There was a male version, the Lilu. These demons preyed on young men and women, often sleeping with them. Though it was the Lilitu who were a bit more interesting, mainly because there's reference to them more. Possibly a reference to them in the Bible. The book of Isaiah includes a fleeting reference to Lilith as inhabiting the desert. This Lilith is thought to be Lilitu. Lilith, by the way, doesn't always appear. And in some translations, she's replaced by Demon, Screech Owl or just Night Monster. The Lilu and Lilitu might have been the lookers of the demon world. But generally speaking, they weren't the most attractive bunch. Take Asag, for example. He was so hideous in appearance that he could boil fish in rivers. I'm going to finish by citing a very interesting piece by Constantopoulos, which will be in the reading section of the show notes. This looked into the Sebatu, a group of seven demons. Sebatu actually translates as the seven, which is, I think, pretty cool, however you look at it. In fact, this number was thought to have been special in some way and often features from the seven gates of the underworld to the seven touches Lamashtu would try to make on a pregnant belly. Though sebetu were demons and lauded for their warrior skills, by the latter half of the second millennium they were being praised for it all. These skills might be used for the state, and they even ended up having cults and temples. In the Neo-Assyrian period, kings cited their control and used it, not just to in- indicate how skilled they were in warfare, but also their divine sanction, which after all allowed them mastery of the sebetu. The sebetu was shifted from chaotic demons to kingly propaganda, sometimes included in a treaty or cited in a temple inscription. And this harks back to a point I made at the beginning of the episode, in that there's a lot of time being covered, and it follows that over such a timescale, attitudes and perceptions would change. That a demon can end up being state propaganda, underlines the flexibility of the Mesopotamian culture, something I find incredibly fascinating. And with that, I've come to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening, and feel free to come and find me on Twitter, either at Ancient Blogger or at Hound Ancient, or just email me via my ancientblogger.com website. It'll be good to hear from you. Again, if you can leave a review on the platform you've listened to this, please do, it really really helps. Until next time, keep safe and stay well.